0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Chris Peltz, who is a scientist um, specializing in biochar and biomass, and he works with Research Services, LLC, which is based in the United States of the West. And we'll be talking about, uh, let, me just, let me just remind you or note that this is the second in a series of conversations specific to the biochar technology and its potential in terms of repairing land and its potential in terms of helping to draw excess carbon down out of the atmosphere. So welcome, Chris. I'm really, really happy to be speaking with you.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's great to speak with you as well.
0: I was, I was looking through some of the stuff you've, you, you've got. You've got um, some presentations posted up on YouTube. Um, obviously, you've got a, a LinkedIn site that talks a bit more about your work. There's a website for research services, LLC, which we'll, um, we'll put the link for that underneath the, this podcast when we post it. Um, and it's, it, it looks like a lot of your work is involved in reclamation of land, um, which has been disturbed by mining in, in that region of the United States and land uh, which, because of its location and its nature, is actually particularly fragile and uh, historically difficult to restore. Am I right about that? That's absolutely right.
1: Most of my work has been either in the desert areas of the US West or in high elevation areas or riparian and riverside areas.
0: Um, That's, I mean, that's important work as far as I'm concerned. can you give us maybe a thumbnail um, introduction to your, your work more generally or more broadly? Absolutely. And follow that up by an additional thumbnail um, to introduce biochar for those who may not have seen the last um, conversation or may not be really up to the speed on that.
1: Sure, sure. So I went to college in Colorado, went to Colorado State. And at the time that I went to grad school in college, I was working in ecology and working in forest sciences. And I think maybe some of your listeners, and some of us remember that the 2000s were a particularly fraught time to be in uh, environmental science. And a lot of what my background uh, was, was measuring things on the landscape, measuring streams, measuring trees. Measuring air quality, water quality, all these things, and what was really, what was really front and center for me through all this was what I was measuring was the decline of environmental systems. It was either fires or floods or, or all these things, and it was it was kind of a sad. It was it was really, I had to have really a lot of reflection on what what I was doing, and then around 2010. I started working with the forest service in durango colorado southwest corner of colorado and one of the forest service rangers said hey chris we'd like you to uh consider running some field trials with this stuff called biochar and i had never heard of biochar at the time and i said sure you know whatever you'd like to do we had been partners on several projects and i was excited to work with them and so they showed up with a truck full of what looked like uh, the remains of a, a, of a campfire and it just smelled like a campfire and it was all chunks of black charcoal. And they said, okay, here's your, here's your ton of biochar. We'd like you to do some studies with this. And I looked at the bins and I looked at my partner and I said, what is this? Is this a joke or you know, what, what is all this stuff? They said, no, this is carbonized wood. We think this would be a good, we think we can put this on the mine tailings and get better revegetation outcomes. So I said, okay, fine, let's try it. So we started setting up some small trials, uh, small greenhouse trials. And lo and behold, I was shocked, I was amazed. Uh, Soil conditions changed, vegetation outcomes changed. Uh, We're seeing stuff grow, plants grow on mine sites where nothing had grown for over a hundred years. And that was really the beginning for me on this new path toward um, how best to utilize things that we already have to reclaim these sites that they're beautiful, they're far out in the wilderness, they're, they're places that are just spectacular, but they're also dramatically impaired by uh, human activities, both current and legacy. So that's how I sort of started on this path of, of uh, looking at biochar.
0: Okay, that's, uh, uh, let's jump into that trunk full of burnwood. wood um so it arrived looking pretty much like a forest fire uh, that had been been put out Um, yeah and so then what was what was the way in which you went from there to bringing uh life back to these mine sites which had been uh, unable to recover in a century
1: of course yeah well um Given my training, the first thing we started doing was measuring stuff. So we so we started measuring the chemical, physical, and sort of uh, biological properties of the material. So we sent it to labs. We did in-house trials. We wanted to really characterize what we were getting. And then the next thing we we started looking at is where could we place this stuff? So we went around Silverton, Colorado, which is a lovely place in southwest Colorado. The town is at 9,300 feet. And it's filled with mining sites, over 120 years of mining. And we tried to find the worst possible soils we could find, things that were toxic, bright orange, bright silver. And we got samples of those soils. We got a range of them. And if if you know what pH is, the pH scale is how acidic or basic things are. We found things that were really acidic, like maybe 3 pH, so maybe like what a Coca-Cola is and we characterized these soils, and we developed a bunch of greenhouse trials. So we took one liter uh, containers, we mixed the soil with various amounts of the biochar from very little, like maybe 1% to 30% by volume. And we set off these greenhouse trials and we started growing uh, these sterile barley plants that are really quick to germinate, quick to grow, and also pretty sensitive to poor soils. So we'd get a good response right away. So we had these greenhouse trials growing and we also put field trials in. So we tried to recreate what we were doing in the lab and in the greenhouse out at the
0: mining sites. So now you weren't, I mean you weren't just chucking lumps of firewood around. Um, No, no. uh, Like how finely did you have to to break this down to incorporate it in the soil? Was it like dust or was it more like gravel or?
1: So this was back in 2010. It was sort of early days. So what I received looked like if you went to a campfire the next morning. Uh, It was ranges of sizes. There was small fraction dust particles. There was large sort of almost, you know, two inches across particles. So our first step was sort of to homogenize everything. So, you know, physical compaction a little bit, a little bit of sieving, until we could get uh, a more or less uh, two millimeter particle. So everything passed a two millimeter sieve. So that was we thought that was good because that that kind of related to the soil carbon particles we were finding in in the area as well. Okay. With that material, we then tried to recreate in terms of the volume that we we're using in the greenhouse out on the field trials so we installed but like two meter by one meter plots so we'd go to a, a, a tailings pile or a mine site and we would dig I had lots of great tough interns that would dig in these really really tough soils these two meter by one meter by about eight inches deep plots and then we would homogenize the zone and then we'd incorporate either Uh, Biochar, biochar and straw, or just a seed control. And we tried to make each plot as consistent in terms of its physical character as the one next to it, with the only difference being our treatments, either biochar or or whatever else. So
0: so the straw is a methodology from previous uh, kind of protocols? Correct,
1: yeah. Uh, Weed freed straw is commonly used. Mostly is for erosion control, uh, but in reclamation, it's spread over everything. Okay, um, erosion control, but a lot of people like to crimp it in, so to press it into the soil, as it's uh, sort of a fast-reacting carbon. And, and I given to, that
0: it also that, gives a little more openness to the soil itself, right? Correct.
1: Yeah, you're creating a little more void space. And remember, too, we didn't we we were very. Um, aware that we didn't want to try too many things that weren't already being used. So we wanted to have the biochar already be a part of existing reclamation practices. And the wood and the straw, wood straw, uh, weed feed straw, that was already used pretty consistently.
0: Right. So you're just controlling for the one new addition. Correct. Yeah. Okay and you found like in terms of maybe percentages and that sort of thing what kinds of, of differences did you did you find?
1: I was shocked. I was shocked. I couldn't believe the, the vegetation response. Um, some of these sites with the straw only, with our seed only, it looked exactly you know at the end of the summer or at the end of our growing season exactly as it did when we walked up. It looked like a, a mine site and then but on the biochar amended plots, it was incredible. We were getting, you know, uh, cover value. It, it would be bright green, and our cover would go from you know ten to forty percent veg cover.
0: Which and, and did this persist um, year on year, or or did you was this kind of like a flush, and then it more or less went back to previously the following season? So, in
1: some cases, in
0: some cases
1: the effect of the char seemed to be more, the, a stronger response following years. In some other cases, effect was less. And the only real difference we saw between the follow-on effects and sort of fleeting effects appeared to be where in the soil profile the mass the the most of the char resided
0: so, so does that mean, are you speaking about the depth then
1: yes okay. and we, and in some cases <laughs> and and when you have field trials, uh, especially you know in these sites, a big problem too is animal browse, so on some of our most successful sites where we initially had this great flush of vegetation, every elk, deer, rabbit, and Anything else from miles around came and ate everything.
0: Of course, you planted a magnet.
1: Oh gosh! So, so, <laughs> so this was early days. So we were learning how to exclude animals in some of these sites, and we didn't actually expect such a big response. So, uh, lesson learned there. But yes, your, to your point of where we were seeing follow-on effects, year-on-year effects, it really seemed to have. Uh, it was related to where and how much char was in that really that first
0: inch or two of soil and and so how many years now since you began those tests are you into it so the first first trials were placed in 2010 okay
1: so we're and looking- new trials, we put new trials in every year. The last set of trials I've installed were in 2017.
0: And obviously going back to check any changes from the first ones as well.
1: Yeah, we've been following a lot of these, my group and I. Um, and, and some of the early trials are methodological challenges. Um, these later trials, the newer trials, we've definitely gotten the methods better. Um, so it's hard to compare early to late as, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners will understand. Mm,
0: right. Because you've been constantly upgrading. Yeah. Changing your methods a little so, bit. So who, I mean, I, 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 look at some of the images and, and some of the things you showed look like pretty much wall to wall mining. Uh, I, I I don't remember now whether they were fracking sites or where they were mine, mining points, but. You could see a, a large landscape that seemed to be have, holding evenly dispersed disturbances. Um, there, there were kind of technological units of some sort sitting there. Again, I don't know whether they were like mine shafts or, or wells. Um, and then the soil uh, around them almost, almost spread or budded, you know, the next one. So, so I mean, in, in terms of the, in terms of the region where you're working, what's what's the scale of disturbance that really needs to be rectified?
1: Oh, it's thousands of acres. Um, uh, for example, there's over thirty-five thousand existing oil and well oil and gas well pads just in Utah, um,
0: and, and that's what I was seeing was the well pads, was it?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and that's gonna increase. In some cases. And that's just the pads. There's then roads. There's associated infrastructure. There's uh, pipelines. It's it's an immense area just in Utah. Um, in the areas in Silverton where I work, there was over
0: 5,000, 5,400 and something
1: uh, mining
0: affected sites. And all in these very, very fragile soils in an area that, I mean, is the rainfall episodic? Or is it just very slight? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. so the various areas I, I work is uh, Nevada, where you might think it's very arid, so maybe less than eight inches of rain a year, and most of it coming in October. Uh, places like Silverton, Colorado, you get a really a bimodal, so a lot of rain in the summer, in July, and then a lot of your precipitation happens in the winter. So you get a lot of snow in the winter, a lot of rain in July. Um, and then places like Utah, where you have rain periodically uh, as part of the summer monsoon, the North Mm -hmm. American monsoon, and then a little bit of snow in the winter, but generally pretty dry. So aridity is a big factor at all these sites, even with the high precip zones, because of the orientation of the sites and the soil character.
0: Okay, and one of the things that people uh, who work with Biotrack get excited about is its ability to kind of even out some of the moisture regime in the soil.
1: Oh absolutely yeah I mean the NRCS it's been sort of widely understood that if you add one percent of soil carbon to a soil you can increase the soil moisture holding capacity of that soil by about 20,000 gallons per acre.
0: That's phenomenal and and that's and that's regardless of whether that's um, quickly decomposing carbon like in the form of compost versus much longer, persistent carbon like in the form of, of a biochar is that true it does matter it does matter okay it does matter
1: the reason uh, we like using the fixed carbon with a surface area of 150 square meters or above is generally because when you look at it under a scanning electron microscope you will see these macro pores these things that are two to Four nanometers, oh, sorry, 200 to 400 nanometers, things like that that are you know maybe half the width of a human hair, maybe a third. And those spots will, you'll get a lot of water holding in there at a very small, fine scale, but that water is plant available. So it's kind of and, like
0: na- nano sponges. That's right, yeah. Okay. And other, others have described it as a sort of uh, it's like a, a coral reef of the soil in terms of its, its porosity and, and its structure and its ability to sort of harbor micro life and, and that sort of thing.
1: I, I use the term carbon matrix. It's a matrix okay. um, of various sizes, various configurations, but whether you want to say a sponge or a reef, it, it practically has the same effect. It's places to store and hide particles and nutrients and, and water.
0: And and so like if you if you flatten that out, I mean it's a phenomenal the phenomenal uh, surface area to, you know, a, t- a spoonful of biochar.
1: Yeah, I mean there's you know activated carbon you're talking thousand square meters per gram. The biochar we're using is between 150 and 300 square meters per gram, and a gram of char is very is not very much.
0: So that's pretty phenomenal. You mentioned you mentioned when you first started. Well, actually, when you first kind of introduced your work, um, you mentioned that the two thousands were a particularly fraught time. Was that fraught in terms of the sense of of funding not being available to this kind of research, or was there political opposition? Like, what was going on then that made it difficult?
1: And you, you know, just my perception of it at the time, and going to school in Colorado, I think. At the time um, in the States, yeah, there, there was a real difference in how uh, the West was being treated in terms of resource extraction. Uh, the political environment at the time was very different. It, were, it was the Bush years and environmental causes um, were seeming to be at a low point. I mean, I think a lot, a lot of us in the early 2000s thought that we would have an environmentalist present, we'd have Al Gore. And that was very much not the case. So I think going to undergrad and grad school at that time shaped my opinions uh, in a way that, you know, was right for the time or was affected by the time. Um, and and what, yeah. made,
0: what made you persist given, given that it was difficult, you know, kind of growing upstream in a, in a sense?
1: Well, I think for a lot of us that go into biological sciences, we love being in the woods. We love being on the rivers and we love being in the mountains and a chance to make a, a career out of going to these places and looking at them in, uh, with, with a trained eye uh, really makes these places even more spectacular to me. It's like, so, so, so that's what kept me persisting.
0: All right. I'm I'm going to continue on this, on this vein for a sec, if I may. I'm, I'm I'm really actually quite curious, um, how you came to the decision to pursue this study and, and, you know, this career, um, you know, maybe from an earlier point in your life and earlier, early experiences.
1: Uh, you know, I, I've been, uh, person family has camped and hiked and skied and spent lots of times i moved to colorado when i was still in my teens and moved to a ski area and i've always sort of lived in mountain towns and so i think um, part of what brings me great happiness is is being in these landscapes in the mountains and in the deserts going down the rivers and oceans and i think If anything, I just get a lot of joy uh, being out there and now the joy I receive, the joy I feel going back to sites where I've had a chance to uh, reduce the impacts of historic mining and maybe it used to be a a waste dump and now it looks like a field, uh, flowers and grasses and things and it's really, um, it's so gratifying for me. So I think that's, that's what keeps
0: me going. That's such a beautiful example, too, of um, how what may seem a really super focused um, activity, because as a you know as, as a scientist or researcher, many people have to focus very very tightly in order to to get meaningful mm-hmm. results uh, that can then be applied often by others. Um, and yet, you're having an impact that you know potentially uh, could could repair hundreds of thousands of acres. It's, it's
1: very gratifying. And, and you know, if, if I do nothing else in this world, uh, there are sites out there that before I was involved, it was a polluted site and now it's not. And if I think there's anything that I can provide, anything that I'm give to this world, that that's my greatest gift
0: what would you what would you tell a young person who's trying to decide whether it's worthwhile going to university at all or 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 how to um, maybe direct their studies
1: yeah, and I think that's a very important question right now given, uh, given the our, our future and what 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 does education mean for us um, The thing I got out of college and especially was the people that I met and the professors that I met and the nothing about the coursework. Sure. All that stuff helps you to be a more knowledgeable person, but it was the human connections that you make in these places where you're all working on a, a, a thing together and in it's intense time. Uh, those are the things that I got the most of and, and I still receive a lot of value from every day. So that's what I would encourage anybody to go to college for, the connections you'll make.
0: And maybe the ability to take something that you already care about, such as your experience of growing up in a more recreational sense on that landscape Mm -hmm. and then finding a way both to justify in the terms of, not justification in, in, in the sense of, Having an argument about it, but but justification in in the sense of well, I need to make a living, and I get to make a living, doing something positive for that landscape I love so much. I, um, there's something about that formula that I think is quite compelling. I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah.
1: Well, life is fleeting, and you should have some joy every day. And if the thing if the thing that you do every day uh, brings you joy, you'll never work again.
0: So Yeah, that, that's true, you know, I think about these cultures that, that uh, don't even have a, a name for work, you know, it's just doing, just doing things. That's uh, right, that's right. Yeah. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, The writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at MindAndMedia.com That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D M-E-D-I-A And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host, Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. I'm speaking with Chris Peltz today in Silverton, Colorado. He is with Research Services, LLC. And this conversation is really about the application of biochar as a tool and an important ingredient in land repair. Who supports this kind of research and um, thinks that they're going to benefit from it?
1: Yeah, and over the years, it's a range of different entities. I've um, gotten funding from the EPA. I've gotten funding from uh, small landowners and everybody in between. Uh, State agencies, the Forest Service, um, you name it, uh, uh, county commissioners, anybody that has a pollution problem, where other off-the-shelf options have failed or not achieved what people were seeking to achieve. Um, I have had a chance to either present the option of using the char for their particular pollution issue, and you know, so often folks are willing to try something so some of the sites that you've seen from previous talks i've given it's been mining companies directly saying hey we're spending all this money doing reclamation and we and we end up doing having to go back to the same site over and over and over again can you, can you give us something else to try uh farmers you know in the west in the u.s west a lot of what farmers do to irrigate their fields are use these center pivot irrigation systems so these, right.
0: when you fly over, you just see like these green discs.
1: You see the green disc, but you notice that there are corners. Those fields uh, are all on the quarter section, yep. so they're all they're all square. But they can only irrigate that middle circle, yep. and they re- and so they're losing all this money, all this arable land on these corners because they can't get water out to them. So a uh, project I've worked on in Nevada and Utah is where maybe let's increase the carbon content of those corners so that we don't need as much water out there. Put the biochar just in your corners, and then maybe you can increase your yield without having to change anything else.
0: Interesting. Um, I, I hadn't heard anything about that, but it makes sense, you know, because when the rain does come, obviously it's going to last longer and where, where there's that sponging, kind of a spongifying effect from the biochar. I, right. I have seen some studies from the wine the wine region of California, I can't remember whether it was, maybe it was the Sonoma Biochar group. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a few years ago, but they were they were looking at uh, upwards of a twenty percent uh, reduction in the amount of water needing to be applied to the vineyards
1: so the, so there's a trick with it. Um, so a, a lot of my sites we have uh, continuous soil moisture measurements uh, so we can capture the precipitation events and how soil moisture dynamics change following and what what we're noticing is that you don't necessarily get a a lot more water storage but what you get is a longer time between your precipitation event okay so it rains on tuesday by thursday my bio my plots that have no biochar are back to the same soil moisture condition they were before the rain event but your biochar plots they don't get back to that previous event until Saturday or Sunday or the next week. So instead of uh, you get soils that get wet and then they get dry right again, you have this longer tail of uh, decreasing soil moisture. And this could have huge implications if you're a farmer paying for electricity to have to irrigate twice a week. If you could go to once a week or only one and a half times a week, it starts to become real money and real water savings, which, which translates to a lot of other good things.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of ripples through the system, doesn't it, as a benefit? Oh yeah, great and, and, pun again. And, and, <laughs> and, what, and what you don't necessarily factor in that kind of a, a you know, benefit balance, is what's really making that possible. And I mean, not, not you specifically, but one, um, is the, the, the unseen uh, improvement in terms of the health of the microbial community in terms of the, you know, the, the ability of the, the native fungi to uh, do their job more efficiently um, for you know, the grassroots or, or whatever other cover you might have, being able to penetrate that much further down because they're following the water chain. Because yeah, going on that we don't see, and it's great for the farmer to be able to maybe cut their electricity bill in terms of irrigation and, the, and their water bill. But the, the attendant benefits go far beyond that.
1: Absolutely. It's a, improving soil health, everyone has a good reason. Everyone sees a benefit of improved soil health. The farmer, the consumer, uh, everyone.
0: So if if, if if I'm a mining company, I'll probably eventually find your website, the research services website, and and have a conversation with somebody there and, and possibly or probably contract you to come out and um, on the basis of what you've already demonstrated, maybe do a, a trial on my own site because everyone wants to see it for themselves you know fresh before they you know fully jump in but eventually maybe I will but if I was a farmer for instance um what is sort of like how would how would I begin that that engagement how would I not not in terms of contact and follow-up but sort of like you know what would be my first steps if I wanted to start Well, you know, uh, getting the corners that the irrigation doesn't reach. If I wanted just to kind of go in that direction, is that something that I could organize myself, organize through my, uh, you know, production or my producers' cooperative? Or how would I I start to put that together?
1: So so likely you're already doing it. Um, Most acreage in the West is grown for corn silage animal feed and various animal feed. And in the fall and early spring, most of those folks are burning the stubble.
0: Right. They're just (laughs) clearing it by
1: burning. Right. And they're trying to use a low intensity burn and they end up with a bunch of fixed carbon. It looks just like you had spread biochar over the field. And so farmers are they already they get it they know we gotta add carbon every year because every time they plow they're losing soil carbon so one thing you could suggest to um your farmer compatriots would be to say okay well you know instead of uh plowing under the corners leave that one corner or leave a couple of corners of your pivot uh un untilled and just burn the corner and plant that corner so plant right through the charcoal plant right through the charcoal like you do already on your pivot corner but instead of um they'll often plant like a cover crop or a fast growing cover crop to keep soil erosion down in that corner yeah so you just burn it burn the stubble right there and plant like you would uh in your pivot circle and don't do
0: anything else and over time you're building that that soil bank back up. Absolutely. And and likely
1: you would see a yield difference that first year.
0: And are you finding the, you know where you are locally are, you, are has it kind of shown up on the radar of the of the, the farmers, community?
1: The people that are the most interested are the ones who have a existing excess biomass
0: challenge okay. uh, You'd the, it's not I don't think it's usual for people to think in terms of biomass as being a challenge rather than a resource oh
1: well I mean you know it, people have landscaping uh, yeah, all, all every municipality has huge piles somewhere of sticks and leaves and stuff they sweep up off the street um, every waste wastewater facility is trucking, um, basically, you know, human solids off somewhere to bury all these things are biomass that currently we don't have good ways. There's no good way to, uh, address these byproducts. And so any, anybody has this issue and they have to pay lots of money to dispose of this stuff, which essentially at this point is bury it. In a, a big pile somewhere,
0: so they're not—they're not, they're not uh, composting. They're shredding it, and, you know, chipping it or whatever, and composting.
1: It. Everybody tries, but it's expensive, and mm-hmm. you can only use so much compost. And all this other stuff keeps coming.
0: That's uh, that's so different because I'm sitting here in Spain, right, and, and, and right. we're in the Mediterranean. Mediterranean is, you know, looking at looking backwards at three thousand years of of just. You know, destroying the, the, the biomass. Uh, you know, the classic Mediterranean soil and climate regime is this oh, yeah. you know bare soil, pummeled by uh, <laughs> infrequent, intense rains, and then long periods of drought. And anytime anything hits the ground, someone comes along and burns it. You know. Okay right so yeah you know, that that's what has created this classic mediterranean landscape that from a distance looks so romantic and is really difficult to sort of make a living in as a farmer so yes. you know that uh, cities are dealing with biomass i think probably differently although i don't know that they've really started to try to address things like um, you know m- municipal organic waste as a, as a as a mixed residue um, or, or sewage waste as a mixed residue that's still going into landfill, and at at a, at a large cost to the municipalities. But it is it's quite you know it's it, it's interesting to reflect on the difference in um, how these management challenges appear and are addressed depending on where you might be in the world. Um, let's shift just for a, a, another angle on this into the actual process of, of carbonizing the, the biomass sure. through this process of pyrolysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, I note that one of the projects you guys have been researching has to do with uh, uh, units which are essentially uh, you know, specially designed uh, furnaces or kilns Right. That, that make the conversion and, and you've been working on some units which can be moved around maybe on the back of a truck or something like that right. Can you take us through the advantages to that and and the hopes for for what that might enable sure you know uh, so it really comes down to cost of
1: trucking and if your biomass is out in the forest your, you know, in the Mountain West this summer particularly, we had lots of forest fires. And yep. in, as part of the conversation is we should thin, we should reduce the biomass on the forest. Okay, great. Well, there's no really uh, marketable logs and in much of the West, there's no mills. So what ends up happening is they cut the trees down and they leave them on the forest floor right there. It doesn't, in, it, it's still a biomass uh, excess. It sounds like a fire waiting to happen. It it very much can be, um, depending. So the thought and, and often what people do is they'll pile the slash, which is not the main stem, but everything that's associated with it, pile and burn. And so they'll they'll do their thinning activities. They'll make these big piles, and they'll come back through in the winter time, and they'll burn all these piles. Um, in you know as controlled as you can be in a big bonfire out in the middle of the woods hundreds of them yeah and so the idea would be oh if you could get a mobile pyrolysis machine out to these piles because you don't want to truck water and most of the fresh residue that you're cutting it's still mostly water it's much more economical to truck dry finished material carbon biochar is very easy to truck it's very light packs really nicely And, uh, you know, it's bigger volume, but you're reducing the initial volume by 75%. So you can take a lot more biomass out of the forest if you don't have to take it in its original form. So the biggest benefit of taking these mobile units, and there's uh, various types. There's rotary pyrolysis ones, there's these kilns, there's stack versions, there's these big kind of open, they almost look like a, uh inverted triangle so there's a a bunch of varieties but the main idea is that you take the you do the chemical change through fire out at the site of your biomass and you only truck the material that you want to use for a higher purpose a higher value product
0: is there is there a way in that setup to just take out the energy like in the form of either you know, batteries where, you, where you've stored it or bio oils or biodiesel and this sort of thing. And then the need yeah. to help the soil regime in, in terms of its moisture retention. If the answer to all those things are yes,
1: absolutely. The, it comes down to cost. Those things are really expensive. And when you start having to separate oils so when your your process is a low enough temperature where you can separate some oils, uh, separating oils from wood, especially in a mobile unit, you end up with a lot of engineering challenges. Um, you get things precipitate out at different places and you gum up your machine very, very quickly. This is okay. a constant source of, of frustration with a lot of these folks that do mobile pyrolysis.
0: The, so there's yeah. there's an opportunity there for, for really creative, inventive engineers to uh, kind of jump in and, and see if they can solve some of these you know, more thorny problems. Uh, I,
1: the engineering is fairly simple. I mean, humans have been burning stuff for 70 plus thousand years at this point. Uh, we have a good handle on that. That trick is the economics. Uh-huh. So so I agree yes you got to have smart people putting these machines together but you have to have really smart people to figure out what's the how you can squeeze out the most value from doing this. Right and which is which is why I have always when I very soon after coming to this I quickly realized that you must be able to grab value at multiple points. If you're just making biochar to put it in the soil you're, it's not gonna last. You're, you're, your company's gonna go under, you're not gonna put much char out because you're gonna go financially bankrupt. You need to grab value when you make the char, you need to grab value using it once, you need to grab value using it again, and then you still need to get value when you put it in the ground.
0: And this, I mean, that's, that, that brings it around in a nice circle for me because my initial uh, interest and, and now conviction you know, in support of, of biochar, is looking at the multiple benefits. So I mean, a, a nice permacultural kind of stacking, if, if you will. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, given that we're using vegetative matter and, and uh, making it quite resistant to decomposition in the process, we're drawing down some of that excess Atmospheric carbon and putting it back where it belongs and can do, uh, you know, its services in the soil. So the more we can incentivize people to do that, then the faster, you know, we'll be able to To scale that up um, and draw more down and that multiple, you know, the multiple benefits uh, coupled with the multiple uh, revenue streams from that. I think is absolutely essential.
1: Oh, yeah, I'll give you an example of a system where this might work. And this is what we were working on around Durango Um, there was a a wood factory where they were making erosion control blankets and pellets and all these things and they had about 30% of the logs that came on site ended up Were unusable for their process. So they had about 30% biomass offtake now so we would want to make biochar out of their byproduct that they have to pay to ship off their site. So we're going to make that biochar at that site. But then we're going to take that biochar and we're going to use it as a uh, filter mechanism for acid mine drainage. And we're going to filter uh, acid mine drainage from the sites where having a treatment facility doesn't make sense. So then we're going to flow water through these biochar bags for a while. And once they get saturated, we're going to take that char and then we're going to use it and we're going to flow municipal waste charge through it. So now we have iron, zinc, and phosphorus coated on our biochar. And we've we've used it as a filter in two different distinct uh, pollution sites. Now we have this biochar that has nutrients, iron, zinc, things that we need in the soil, and now we're going to use it as... as a higher value uh, fertilizer soil amendment in a place where it's either uh, landfill covers or places where they're already putting municipal solids out and you mix it with that so you have a better carbon and
0: nitrogen ratio.
1: So So it gets value at every point.
0: So there's no issue then with the heavy metals, which are unacceptable in the water supply emitting from the mine sites to being uh, coating the biochar, which is then spread on the land. Correct. Yeah, we're talking mostly mostly iron. Okay,
1: okay. And iron, all these soils are, are very, very iron deficient. So yeah, we're, we're taking it out of the fluvial system and putting it back
0: into the soil where it can be used by plants. It so cannot t- be used by plants in the fluvial system. So you're turning it into a net benefit. Correct. But beyond the economic benefits, you're actually turning it into a net, a net biological benefit as well. We 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 hit all the bottom lines by doing that. Yes, <laughs> that's super. Um, we're coming up on the end of our of our time really quickly. Um, if average Joe or or Jolene uh, wants to find out more about uh, what's happening in your region with this, say you know I've got a sheep farm out there or uh-huh. uh, of you know, a, a rangeland of some sort, and maybe I'm working with the wildlife, whatever. Um, but I'm really curious about maybe this biochar uh, technology is, is something I've overlooked and, and could be really helpful for, for my operation. Yeah. What's my next step? Is it to get in touch with you at the research services uh, company? or directly? Easy
1: enough to get in touch with me. Uh, I'm going to give you two other great sources. You know, always the International Biochar Institute is a great first stop. Uh, they, you know, that is a constantly changing website. They're up, updating stuff all the time. It's a great resource. So I would recommend everyone stop there at least once. And then for biochar projects in the West that I've been involved in, at least in Utah, the Utah biomass resource group, um, out of, uh, Utah state and Logan, uh, headed by Darren McAvoy. They also have a great website and a lot of the projects that I've worked on, and Darren has worked on mobile pyrolysis and application. They're all housed there. So the UBRG is a great place to stop as well.
0: Okay, and we'll put, we'll put those links below this when we post the conversation. Great. Um, anything anything in parting that you'd like to leave us? Bi-
1: Biochar is for everybody. It's, it's, it's for everybody. You can do it in your backyard. You can do it at the biggest mining site in the world and I would encourage anyone uh, to try and play with a little bit. For a bunch of years now, I have been teaching an environmental science class to high schoolers. And we do a week of making small-scale pyrolysis units. So we make the biochar ourselves by designing and building these small units. We make the biochar, and then we do greenhouse trials all in one week. And every one of those kids that come away from there you know, I, I see it in them. They, they have a new, they're newly empowered to change the world for the better. So you tell that to your listeners, you
0: are and empowered. That, you just did. That's beautiful. I mean, for me, biochar is pretty close to pure magic. I just, I, I can't get enough of, of, you know, noodling away with it. So um, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's been lovely, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag r-a-s-a dot a-g. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's g-r-e-e-n underscore h-e-a-r-t, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.